Welcome to the Barbarian to the Gate podcast. This is Jeremiah Jenny broadcasting high above Dongcheng District in Beijing. Here in the studio with me, my co-host David Moser, fresh off the boat or plane or quarantine <laughs> or something yeah. from Taipei. Yes. How are you doing, David? I'm doing very well. Actually, it, um, although I enjoyed Taiwan for the month I was there, and it was very interesting, and it was it in some ways a, a breath of fresh air, and, but in a way it was also kind of nice to get back because, you know, let's face it, I think you and I are the same. We've been here so long, we don't know really how to live in any other culture but this one. And so it was nice to get back to the old restaurants, back to my apartment, back to the, uh, the sound of drills uh, in the apartment complex, renovating all the apartments and stuff like that, all, all the things that, that make life wonderful here. Uh, it was great. The only thing that's not so wonderful is uh, I was so very surprised, actually, even knowing what I know about the intense interest in you know, increasing COVID restrictions be, uh, leading up to the 20th Party Congress. I was surprised uh, to go back to get in touch and get in my school again and to get permission to go back onto the campus how how much the restrictions had increased in just one month since I was here. For one thing, I won't go into too much detail, but instead of the usual, just the uh, the Gen Kong Bao, the health kit QR code, there are three other levels of campus security that I have to go through now. They're increasingly kind of intense surveillance uh, tracking. Even I used to be, I was on campus, and all, the, all they could track me that I had come on campus at such and such a time and I had left at such and such a time. Now I go into a certain building, and there's a, there's a record of that, and they send it to me. You, you entered this building, and your code was green, and then they know when you come in and out. And then there, there are a, a few other additional ones that you have to use for permission. So that's uh, pretty not something that I expected. I figured the system had already sort of reached its optimal level of intrusiveness or of uh, security or whatever, but evidently not. Evidently, they, they saw a need to continue and upgrade it and I don't know that we've seen the end of it even. No, it, it does seem like a lot of the recent cases in Beijing, and again, it's not that many cases, but the, a high percentage of them were clustered in university campuses. These were students that were coming back from their summer break and you know, bringing the cocoa with them. I'm guessing that all the universities and all the schools actually all the way down the line have gotten some very strict uh, guidelines on managing the situation. That's true. That's true. And all of the uh, on campus, I was hoping to see some of the buildings to open up again and some of the little restaurants that were there to maybe. But in fact, that also, because of what you just said, the outbreaks on campus, they had even converted some of the other campus buildings to quarantine quarters. So that was a disappointment. Instead of life coming back to normal, actually, it's gone backwards a little bit. Yeah, I was I was scheduled to give a talk on a, a campus earlier this week. And you know, I contacted the, uh, the organizer and said, so what time do I show up? And he's like, yeah, whoa, 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 easy there, Typhoid Mary. <laughs> typhoid Mary, right? You're, you're not getting yeah. anywhere near this campus. You're going to be on Zoom. I'm like, huh, okay, well, we'll guys keep doing that thing, I guess. So, I mean, uh, your apartment here was locked down for some time. Have you, has there been, have, from your standpoint, has it just been steady state other than the universities, which I'm the one, which I'm talking about? Or for you, it's been the same, the status quo has been the same? You know, it, it does seem that way. I, I think one of the things that the city of Beijing has been trying to do is to avoid negative publicity regarding their COVID policies, which means that the municipal government has been very careful in what they say about the restrictions or the requirements, but that they, but at the different levels, they've been reaching out to all the work units, 
neighborhood committees, par apartment complexes, and then having them issue very strict guidelines. So the result is that the restrictions are coming from sort of the mid-level management, not from the top, which is A, harder to kind of report about overseas. It's not like Beijing in lockdown ahead of party Congress. On the other hand, you know, the October holiday, we're taping this on uh, September 29th. The October holidays are coming up in a couple of days. And I don't know that many people, if anyone, I, I'm sure there's some folks, but most people I know are resigned to the fact that they're not going to be going anywhere, that they're either their company or, you know, their school or even like the, the local you know neighborhood committee has said that if you go, either you're not allowed to go or if you go, coming back is going to be all kinds of hassle. And if you happen to get infected, don't bother coming back. And most people are just like, yeah, screw it. Fine, we'll just yeah. stay here. Yeah, same with me. The, the the October holidays and all the schools have, have been canceled. The the school assures me, that, and other places I've heard, there's no October holiday where classes are, are, are will resume as usual. Uh, but you get it to take a you know the the winter break a, a week early. <laughs> so I mean they're they're promising that the time is going to be the same. They just want to get through this uh, party Congress meeting. I mean that's that's the issue. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's the big thing right now. But the other, the other part too, and, and those of us who live in China, or if you've lived in China, you you know this holiday schedule thing. But if you've never been here, or you you haven't worked here, know that the seven day Golden Week holiday is coming up on Saturday. However, Saturday and Sunday are included as part of these seven days, and most people have sat. Most people, not everyone, but most people have Saturday and Sunday off anyway. And at the end of those seven days, so the following weekend, which is October, well, October 8th and 9th, yeah, those are working days. So you have to go to work on those weekend days. So as a result, it really is kind of a three-day holiday when you add, when you take away the weekends you ordinarily would have gotten and add back in the weekends that, you, that people have to work. And if that makes sense to you, then congratulations, you've passed level one yeah. of working in China. You're, you're right. A lot of foreigners don't realize that. People from outside of China don't realize that. I have hated that ever since I encountered it working for, for a state unit. And I, it, I think it's a fraud. I mean, here you have a, you know, a two-week vacation or something, actually. But then when it's like, congratulations, you have, a, you have a week off. However, we're adding two weeks in the previous week, and after vacation, you have to add two more days. And so actually, you only have about two days holiday. But people seem to accept this here. I don't quite understand it. I've always, as much as I can, I've chose to ignore it. And anytime I've had control over the scheduling of employees, I've generally chosen to ignore it unless, uh, you know, directed otherwise. But yeah, so this is this big, this, this week-long holiday is coming up and of course most people are going to be stuck in Beijing or Shanghai or Shenzhen or really wherever they are there are I, I do know a couple people who are, who are going to be traveling they're just they they're going to take the chance and uh, you know take the risk and go and there are some places that you can go that are pretty safe but the, the I mean and keep in mind when we say safe we're not saying safe from COVID because there really aren't that many cases of COVID I mean there are some what we mean is safe from being kind of caught up in the the net of policies and th that's the thing is that most people are choosing where to go, not where you know, trying to avoid an outbreak, which, you know, in some many cities, even the most you know, heavily affected cities, we're talking a couple hundred cases. But they're trying to pick places that it's less le least likely that an outbreak will happen, leading to either them being stranded in that city or not able to return to Beijing or having to go through some convoluted trip to get back here. And what's what's happening right now, and this is the biggest difference between 
you know, September 2022 and September 2021 is that most people I talk to, you know, September 2021, everyone was like, yep, I'm afraid of COVID. I'm afraid of COVID. September 2022, they are still afraid of COVID, but they are just sick to death of having to like navigate all these policies. And I'm not saying that this is some kind of groundswell of opposition against Beijing or, you know, the Beijing government or anything like that. But there's a lot of people who are just like, really? Like, I mean, what what is the, finally people are starting to ask the question that frankly a lot of people around the world have been asking, what's the end game here? But David, you just you just actually came back from overseas. I'm, I'm planning a trip overseas at the end of this year. So I'm really curious. Getting out is relatively, relatively easy. But what was it like coming back in? Because, you know, for those people who haven't had the joyous experience of traveling to China in the COVID age, what, what kind of things did you have to do? What were you worried about? And you also come flying in from Taiwan, which has its own kind of interesting context for reentry, because technically you're not flying That's internationally right. That's right. as much as you're flying domestically right so how does this all shake out yeah well it is yeah it is a conceptual thing we, we can't take this as it's a domestic flight in some sense right actually getting out of here uh, a month ago to I guess it's almost two months ago now was not as easy as I thought this is something that all the school the foreign experts and the teachers in the schools found out which is that people who wanted to leave for the summer break found it very difficult to get permission to leave. And this is the first time I've lived in China and I've worked at universities for 25, 30 years. First time I've ever had any university say, no, you have to get permission to go back to your home country or you have to get permission to leave China. Many reasons for that you can imagine. You know, one is they're, they're bleeding foreign experts like crazy is one thing. But then the other thing is it's a big hassle and they're going to be hard. However, t however everything works out, it's probably going to be hard to get them back in. in and that's another consideration. And it's, in a way, it's a calculation they should take into account because many didn't want to leave for good. They just wanted to go home to see their family. But the, the result may be they have a hard time getting back. So I actually had to provide a lot of uh, information and rationale for leaving. So, it, But once I got everything, it wasn't too bad. Going into Taiwan, uh, I think we talked about this on the last podcast, but the so-called quarantine was basically the honor system. I told about the chaos at the airport that turned out to be not chaos, really, but a sort of a bottom-up feeding frenzy that was a way of making sure that everyone had the right information and then the right apps based upon intense uh, sort of uh, serial interactions with, with the Dabai, the, 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 the white hazmat suit people. And it actually worked quite well. Once I was in my wife's apartment, then uh, it was only a three-day quarantine. And the quarantine just meant monitor yourself. There were no tests. They, they're against tests. They don't, they don't make it easy. They give you a take-home a test thing you could use. But it basically was three days and a phone call every day saying, do you have a temperature? Press one for yes, press two for no. And that's it. That was about it. So it was totally, totally the honor system. And there was supposed to be four days after that where we monitored the situation. But in fact, no one was paying any attention to it. So your university form or the, that you had to fill out or the information you had to give to leave China, is there a box for conjugal booty call? Or is that something you have to file in under other? There generally is not uh, a box for conjugal booty call. 
because no one knows what that means here. But the, the real reason is that it, there, heretofore, before this, there was no such a, there was such a requirement. It was, it was a given that if you have a, a holiday, if you have a summer holiday, of course, of course you can leave, so of course you can come back. This time, however, I was supposed to give a compelling reason to leave. In other words, the, the conjugal booty call was not enough. In other words, just seeing your family, you couldn't say, hey, I haven't seen my daughter in three years. Can I go? Can I leave? No, that's not good enough. So I had to give a reason why it was important that I leave. So I, I won't go into detail what the reason was, but it was half-truths and a little bit of stretching of a, of, of a few real situations. And I wrote it up well enough that it seemed to be convinced them. And of course, I don't know if they believed it or not, but it, I had done gone through the procedure, and I, they also know me well enough to know that I do want to come back. I'm not, I'm not running, jumping ship, right? So coming back, I was a little nervous because uh, checking out the information that they had on the, that the airlines had on how to go, what the the return to Beijing uh, restrictions and the rules were, and it's horribly hard. It's difficult to find any information like that online. I think the airlines don't want to have too much information because they don't want to get sued. So they just give some really, really basic information, and they say, check on this because the rules could change at, at any moment. And what worried me was that I knew I had to get two PCR tests in, within a 48-hour period, but all the other countries are saying you have to get these tests approved by these approved laboratories, and you have to send them to the Chinese embassy in the country where you're at. And here I am, I'm thinking... I'm an American citizen. I'm here. Do I have to do that? But there's no American embassy in Taiwan. Do I have to send it to some? I mean, is there some rule? Am I going to get on the plane and they say, sorry, you're an American. You know, you can't. Uh, the Taiwanese, all they need is the, the two tests and some information about where they're going to stay in, in, in the mainland. But for me, I was worried. And I could never get an answer. I could never get a, a solid answer from the airlines or from anyone. They said, oh, we're not sure. So I finally asked some friends and some people who had, who had done the same thing, including some uh, Beijing friends who had transited through, through Taiwan. And they said, no, all you need is the tube tests. That's it. And I realized that there's this convenient, not fiction, but a convenient fact that Taiwan is considered part of China. And so they can't put Taiwanese through the same rigmarole that, that we foreigners have to go when we're coming from a foreign country. So it was really quite, the easiest part of getting back to Beijing was the, the pre-flight COVID tests and, and the information. It's dirt simple, very easy. And getting on the plane was no problem. The problem was once we got to T3 in Beijing, the problem was the quarantine restrictions. I feel so sorry for them, these Dabai that wear these sweaty, huge out, white outfits. And there are too many people, there are too, there's too much bureaucratic red tape and not enough people to do the job. And most of them are working overtime every day. And they're both, they're both doing medical feet, uh, sort of duties like taking the temperature and, and uh, doing the PCR tests. And they're also just keeping track of passports. And, you know, I had to enter all of my personal information about five times into various different uh, WeChat apps and into various different uh, customs apps. By the time I got through, I think I had given you know five or six complete life histories into into different apps that were for different you know sections or, or different uh, time sections of the quarantine. It's clear also that they are tr really trying to save money on this thing. 
even though this is in a way it's kind of a money making thing. I think a lot of people are making some money off this, but they are cutting corners. Uh, the, the 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 place I stayed in compared to the Shanghai hotel I stayed in two years ago, well, there's no comparison. It was primitive. It was almost like a jail cell. It was it wasn't much, and I was in a building with a、uh, hundred or so other Taiwanese. Who are very picky about food? I was the only one who wasn't complaining every day, taking photos of the slop that they gave us, and you know, look at this, look at this、uh, orange, it's moldy, you know, and this kind of complaints. But I wasn't complaining. I was, in, I was, in, I was happy just to be back, and there were, everyone had all sorts of complaints. But the quarantine was a much rougher, rougher experience than the first time, and I think that's because they're cutting their corners. It's become a, a tiresome, re, you know, regimented. Thing. And the people who are coming back, I think, also、uh, are probably、uh, pretty happy to be coming back. They're not going to complain too much. They, they found. They, I think it's it's a market thing. They kind of found the least optimal, the least possible conditions, which overseas, you know, flights would tourists or, and and people who wanted to come to Beijing, the lowest level that they would tolerate without an open revolt, and they kept it at that lowest level. The Communist Party strategy since 1949. <laughs> Indeed, right. That's right. So you were in quarantine for like seven days, right? Yeah, seven days, and then back home for three days.、So. But you had to pay for ten. Yes, I had to pay for the entire ten. I told them. They said, "Well, you're qualified because you have a, a Beijing residence, but you have to pay the whole ten days up front," which I did. I didn't even think about getting any sort of a refund because I thought there's just no way they even keep track of that. And to my surprise, today, a few minutes ago, I got a phone call from the woman at the quarantine place saying, "You're supposed to get a refund, right?" I said, "What are you talking about?" I had sort of even forgotten that that was a, a thing. So I, I am going to get a refund for the three days, yeah, which is kind of nice. You said I'm suffering from Stockholm syndrome, but you know, every once in a while, I do actually contact people outside of China, and they ask me how my day was going. I'm like, "Oh yeah, today was great." You know, I, I meant from my desk. Do my PCR test, in which a nice person reached out from a, 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 cor- a corrugated tin shack and shoved a Q-tip down my throat a few times. Back to my desk, nine minutes. It's a new record. It's going to be a great day. <laughs> and you know, it's probably good that the FaceTime doesn't work so well these days because I, I don't want to actually see the faces of people as I'm telling them this. But I, I do feel like, in, in your case, just to kind of repeat the story back to you, you were in quarantine. You were incarcerated. For medical reasons, for seven days, you paid for ten, and you feel like you win because you got a refund for the three days you were not incarcerated for medical reasons on your own dime. Right, it's Stockholm syndrome. Yeah, I, I feel for them. I'm happy. I'm I'm grateful. They were so nice to me. This, this whole country has been so nice to me. Yeah, you're right. You're exactly right. It's Stockholm syndrome. I also think too that the fact that so many people are surprised or shocked. Amused, horrified—pick your term—about what life is like in China right now. Also, is a reminder to us that a lot of the people that we know, and a lot of these people are in the field of watching China, are not here. This was brought home to me this weekend while you were doing quarantining.、Um, I was on Twitter, which is its own special circle of hell, and noticing that apparently right outside my window. There was a military coup taking place. So here, high above the Dongcheng District in central Beijing, I went over to my window to see if there really were 80 miles of tanks、um, coming in. And you know, like a few other people who live in Beijing, responding to these rumors that were flying around Twitter that started on a few accounts but then got amplified,、uh, you know, just simply said, "Well, you know, this, this, the, if you're worried, if you're wondering what's going on in Beijing, I'm telling you that I've been around this weekend. 
and I haven't seen anything amiss. And if there's something going on, it's happening real quiet. Like, is it possible there's a coup? Sure. Is it possible that Xi Jinping is about to announce his retirement and a plan to manage a kennel of championship basset hounds? Sure, that's also a possibility. Is either coup or basset king likely? Probably not, but there's what it is. And what I was kind of surprised about was, you know, again, this is Twitter, so take it for what it is. The sine wave of crazy that kind of went through the whole weekend where there's this coup, there's this coup, no, there's not, no, there's not, yes, there is, yes, there is, no, there's not, no, there's not. How do you know? Well, we live here. And then it got to be kind of interesting. Some of the people who were kind of refuting these rumors started, at this, and I was one of them, started to get these weird messages on our feed like, well, don't you want there to be a coup? I'm like... <laughs> I don't know how to answer that. Like, do I, am I a fan of the Communist Party? Absolutely not. Do I want a military takeover of the city where I'm living right now? Yeah, I feel like that would be kind of a bad thing, too. And the other part of it, too, is, you know, well, you know, you, you might not know. And I'm like, well, that's true. I, I grant that. Grant there. I'm, I'm not hanging out in Jongnan High. I'm not partying with the generals. But at the same time, um, I probably have a better chance of knowing that than some guy who's tweeting at me from Texas. And it the And it was kind of... I don't know, disheartening to see just how few people were available on the ground to kind of say, wait, whoa, 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 let's, 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 let's take our foot off the gas of this a little bit. I know everyone's kind of looking for news. I know the party Congress is coming up. I know it's a big deal. And I know there's a huge information vacuum because there's not a lot coming out from here. But before we start filling it with like nine different levels of crazy you know, let's let's kind of take a beat. And also, you know, let's think about the fact that how, how tragic it is that there are so few working journalists, academics and other people on the ground. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's ironic in a way that the, the dynamic you're talking about is uh, the sort of if it bleeds, it leads kind of mentality of journalism and, and especially broadcast journalism. When you have lots of journalists looking at China from outside China, then, of course, they're looking for the bad news. They're looking for the repression. They're looking for the things that can give a headline. What's, what you're pointing out is the irony of the fact is, is that when there were you know, bureau chiefs and bureau reporters here uh, in, great, in, in decent numbers who, in fact, would be checking out such stories like a, like a coup, that's a big story, right? So that's the people here are in a position to and have the motivation to do it because not only are that's their beat, but also the people the editors and the people uh, in New York, you know, they're saying, get on this story. We want to be the ones to cover it. Ironically, those people who are here were the ones that could actually keep, you know, the, the media more honest and keep from spinning these phantasmagorical tales about what's going on here because they're, they were here. You had all the New York Times Bureau people. You had all the FT Bureau people. There are still some here, but not enough to cover all of these stories. And it's sort of like there's people like you and I that are left here I know this dynamic because back uh, before I left for Taiwan, maybe four months ago, three months ago, uh, the BBC was, oh, this is when uh, you know, some of the bigger cities like Shanghai began into a real serious lockdown. The BBC was contacting, contacting me, and I'm not a reporter or anything, just saying, can you periodically answer some questions? We want to have this someone on the ground there to give us a, uh, an account, uh, an on-the-ground you know, birds, not bird's eye, but, uh, you know, reporter's eye view of what's happening on the ground. And my impression was I was happy to do that, and I took some interviews with them. But there was this dynamic that you're talking about. What they were hoping for was news. 
which that, oh, people are angry, there's torches and pitchforks and they're jumping out of the windows. But in fact, what I had to report was pretty mundane, the what you just reported. Well, there's some, you know, there's a few more uh, testing sites, so it's a little easier. The lines are quite long, but I mean, everything I said was just, because life under quarantine and, and lockdown here is still pretty mundane and boring. It's, it's still pretty placid. It's still bureaucratic. It's still just routine daily, you know, drudgery. After a while, they quit asking. <laughs> they, they said, there's no big story here. So let's, maybe it's not so bi as bad as we thought. And so then now they're in, not interested in it anymore. So, I mean, yeah, it is a problem. You know, as long as whatever is defined by the, you know, foreign media as news in China is always bad news or news that fits the stereotype, the narrative that we already have and that, that the foreign readers have, you'll never get an accurate picture of what's going on here. So yeah, I think it's a really serious thing. This this touches on the uh, information asymmetry trope that we've mentioned many times. That's going to only get worse because uh, the people who and the, some of the people are who are here, like these foreign bloggers, for example, who are making money off Chinese media by by reporting rosy uh, rosy images and 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 perceptions of China from their standpoint, and they're usually ignorant. They don't know anything about China. You're stuck with a lot of these people, too, that are putting out a message that's just blatantly false. So, yeah, it's a, it's a serious problem. I don't know what we can do about it. People like you and I are not journalists. We're academics. If, if we put anything in writing about China, it's not going to see the light of day for a year or two. And even then, it's not going to be well, – we can't fulfill the role of journalists. So what are, we, what, what are we supposed to do here? If only there were a medium in which – I don't know <laughs> – Periodically, we could record our thoughts and voices and conversations and post it on the internet. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. But who would listen to that? I mean, I'm still wondering. <laughs> I'll be, I'll be honest. I think you know there is an aspect of this where people are right. We don't know what's going on inside Zhongnanhai, and there are many reasons why that is. And there's always the possibility that there are things going on that are, you know, newsworthy or even shocking. Maybe there are. Maybe there's not. We just don't have any evidence, and that's, that's a problem. We also don't have the, the people on the ground to find that evidence. That's also a problem. So I think, you know, on one hand, I, I'm not completely, I'm not, I'm not dismissing people who were like, maybe there's something happening, we should check this out. But I do feel like the, the real challenge over the weekend was people not just taking that beat. to kind of think, is there anyone there who can take a look, you know, and, right. and see what's going on? Yeah, yeah right. And, and for that... I got to tell you, I, I actually know who the primary culprit is. It's fucking Twitter. Uh, let, me, let me explain this. Now, and this is a little, little bit of a, a story, but bear with me. This, also this past weekend, while I was looking for tanks and, and marching troops and paratroopers landing on the uh, Temple of Heaven, I was walking my little dog, Snickers. And Snickers and I were taking a walk down to the local park where she was playing with the other dogs, a little pack of pooches, many of them corgis, a lot of them Shiba Inus. I don't understand that, but that's part of the story. And I noticed a, a pattern emerge. So when one of the dogs would pee, all the dogs would run over and they would sniff it. And then another dog would run over and he would pee. And all the little dogs would run over and they would sniff it. And then one of the dogs, really excited, just went on, went all four and took a big old dump and that was really exciting they all gathered around took a big sniff and one large dog was so excited about it he started rolling in it and it was at that moment i realized i'm spending way too much time on twitter 
I sense because that's because that's what it is. I think there's an analogy here, just sort of a vague metaphor you're getting at here. Yeah, it's pretty it's vague. A, yeah, no, I think that's I think that's right, I and mean, that's very very right. I mean, I mean, you and I just go back to some of the things that we're missing. You just we just talked about the journalists on the ground here, who who by the way they they didn't only report stories, they also interacted with the other with the various communities here, including the academic communities. They were part of all of that. They were a great source of, of information. In fact, you could say, you know, with so many uh, re- re- journalists here, there was kind of a, a, a group of people who were, were both journalistic but also research academic people who sort of were lived in both worlds. We were both inhabiting the same information sphere, and we were augmenting what we did. Because if you're talking about things like uh, NGO culture, and a crackdown on NGO culture. Well, the people who are the journalists are covering that, but we were too. And we had students who were always interested in that. Devil's advocate time, Mm -hmm. though. Doesn't that have the potential to kind of create its own kind of information feedback loop that creates creates a kind of distortion itself? Yeah, I'm a little more uh, sort of pessimistic or more negative about this. I, I I think that's kind of inevitable. Anytime you have foreigners or anywhere and outsiders in a, a country, there's always going to be a, a little bit of, of a of an insular quality where you're always you're approaching the other country from the standpoint of your own uh, assumptions and your own cultural kinds of preoccupations. So I think that's just inevitable, really. But the the, the advantage of having many many people here from many different backgrounds, permanent and temporary, and also people who are interacting on a sort of long-term uh, research basis on, on other people who are acting on a, on a you know, breaking news basis, all talking about the same phenomenon, sharing their information, sometimes even collaborating. I, th- I think you come up with, a, with an informational you know, product that's a little more reliable, a little more nuanced than you would uh, when, pe- when you don't have that, when you have people outside making educated guesses and depending on Zoom interviews and stuff. So I, I, I think it's inescapable that you're going to get some of this uh, circle jerk phenomenon if you want, but it's better than having nobody at all here. I think that's very important. You know, also, so much of what we were, when I say we, I include... All of us, including uh, the bloggers, which I think, uh, who was it that referred to them? I think it was Brent, Brendan O'Kane talked about this era of feral sinologists, people who did not have a, gr- a degree necessarily, uh, maybe spoke some Chinese or maybe had some interest, but were blogging, and they were here in Beijing or in, in China. And they called them feral sinologists because there was a lot happening in China, and there was more than the news media could cover, and there were stories that the that were just uh, invisible to a lot of uh, scholars, and and the bloggers were doing a great job of covering this. Uh, Jeremy Goldcorn's Danway.org had some really outstanding people on their staff who were finding really interesting cultural phenomenon, putting them out, and translating Chinese texts into English. Uh, and you had a, many, many of those blogs, and they were valuable. And this was information that was sort of freewheeling, and they were studying domains that we were at that time able to get into and and uh, interact directly with the participants and actually write on those domains. And I'm th- I'm speaking of things like LGBT plus LGBTQ plus uh, about the the NGO domains. We're talking about uh, migrant workers. You're talking about uh, you know population control. You're talking about huko issues. You're talking about you know dissidents. You're talking about whatever academic uh, outliers, and th- and there was 
you could meet them, you could interview them. The powers that be were separated enough and ignorant enough of the English information sphere that they weren't likely to very quickly get in, uh, you know, any hint as to what was being talked about in, in the outside media and the media in the, in the foreign press. So you had a little, we had little bubbles of invisibility and, and uh, of immunity where we could actually take on, carry on these activities. One of my creed occur here is that even some of, even if you did have journalists here and more academics who can get back in, they just don't have the access that we used to have. You know, even for those who who write articles and try to write information about China, there's literally you know uh, dead ends everywhere. You can't get in, and even the people who you were your informants and your people that you talked with before don't want to talk to you anymore, for obvious reasons. So it's, it works both ways. You not only have the people who aren't, aren't able to come here, but even if they get here, the access isn't what it used to be. Yeah, I, I, I mean, that was a very different time in that way. And I think it's interesting to see that most of the, as you said, many of the uh, so-called bloggers, vloggers, video content providers or content producers that are in China right now are, are producing content that, you know, quite frankly, tends to be border on, you know, almost disinformation. I have a question about that, though. Uh, this, this is sort of a, this is something I wanted to ask you. You and I recently were interviewed for a piece, uh, a, a series of segments on Confucius. This is uh, this week is Confucius's birthday, and CGTN, which is China Global Television News, was doing a series of features, and the the journalist who was interviewing us is somebody that both you and I, um, you know. I'm not a, a huge admirer of CGTN, but I am a pretty big fan of this journalist as a person. You know, one of the one of the good ones trying to trying to fight the good fight from within. But I have to say, and I, I'm curious your take on this because I had misgivings. You know, I, I've I in the past I have generally turned down any requests to be interviewed or to do anything on camera for the state media here or media that's affiliated with the state here. So I was kind of curious, you know, is it is this something you've also kind of thought about? You, you're you're a little bit more in the public eye than I am, and I was just wondering how, as an academic and as somebody, you know, who is who's obviously made a commitment to increasing the the connections between China and the rest of the world, is this a way of doing that? Are we actually contributing to the making, keeping those connections alive, or? Are we supporting or somehow kind of lending our voice and our credibility to institutions that don't necessarily have those interests in mind, at least in a good faith way? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is an old issue, really. Uh, and this is something that our friend Kaiser Guo, when he was here, we used to talk about a lot because he also went on TV and some other people I know who, who have gone on most, mostly English language uh, state media, but although I do a lot of Chinese state media as well. I, I think it's, it's a little bit tricky, but one thing you have to realize is that in some sense, you just have to, at the outset, realize and accept the fact that in, a, in some sense you are being used. They're, they're not going to invite a foreigner on to talk about some issue unless they either want some information that the foreigner uh, has that they don't, which is a rare situation because usually they always know everything. They just reporters just ask you what they already know the answer to, right? But the other is that you're being used for some reason, and that is you are approving something, or you're putting your, your seal of approval on something, or you're just representing uh, that they hope a positive foreign outlook on on China. 
So that's just a given. So given that, do you think, well, but is there any use or is there any reason or any advantage to me going on TV and, and saying certain things? Well, the, the other thing is you have to pick and choose what you, what you talk about. Uh, CCTV and the, we're talking about the early 2000s, middle 2000s, where I was on TV a lot. Usually they were very, they themselves were very sensitive about this, or at least very conciliatory, very, very concerned about our own uh, degree of comfort. And so they would never ask us to come on and comment about anything that would put us in one of those uncomfortable positions of approving something that you felt you know, uncomfortable about human rights or something like that. They would ask you something about housing prices or, or about education. I've, you, you and I both, I'm sure, have given interviews on education and the Gaokao and comparing it to the United States and comparing college entrance exams and then, you know, student problems and this, you know, because these are not, these are just academic facts that we cannot discuss in terms of a cross-cultural comparison, right? So you have to, you have to pick your topics. Now, Confucius is not a bad topic for us to be talking about, since it, it just so happens that we, we like that topic, we're interested in it, we do know something about it, and we probably have a few vantage points that might differ in some way from an average Chinese person. And we might even know some things that an average viewer would not know. But the other thing is, who's the audience for this? For CGTN and the English language state media, most ordinary Chinese never watch it because they don't understand it. It's in English. Who is the audience for CGTN mostly? It's the many, many stations uh, in Africa, in Asia, other places in Asia, some in America. It's in, in the big CGM broad television outreach that has billions of dollars of money at their disposal. And they're trying to reach this uh, overseas audience to, to have a, you know, a positive view of China. So it doesn't really matter what we say about Confucius. It's not meant to be really scholarly. We want to introduce simple ideas, right? Now, for me, I think, actually, I think it's really good if some foreigners read some Confucius to try to understand Confucius because he was an important philosopher. And if you want to understand China, you do need to dig into Confucius a little bit and understand where, you know, this the Chinese sense of, of the moral system of Chinese, how it was built and, and what it is now. So that's my answer to the question. You know, if you can go on and do no harm and maybe maybe do some good, then you've done your duty. And But you can't expect to come on and, and wreak a revolution or to come out with, with some astounding new news or a new, a new interpretation. They're TV. They don't even want that. <laughs> they want something that's safe. And, 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 and the, at the level of the, the, the newscasters or, or the hosts, they don't even make those decisions, ultimately. They can propose something, but it's the people at the top that are going to make that. So, I mean, if you just understand what the nature of the system is and what the nature of the constraints are and, and how you are going to be used, then I think you can tip through it and actually, you know, do some, do some good. Now, finally, I'll wrap up all this rant on, to say times have changed, and it's not as easy to do that now because they're not— they're more. They're, they will try to pull you into a more a, a sphere of, of a discussion or discourse that you're not comfortable with, and if you don't want to go there, they'll quit using you. So, so it's getting harder and harder to, to walk that tightrope. So increasingly, you know, I don't do as much media as I used to for that reason. So I, I, I agree with your your reservations. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely something you should think of. But I know some people who go on TV and they're really smart people and they talk about economics. Michael Pettis goes on a lot. You know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with him talking about Chinese economics. So that's my take on it.
Yeah, I also think it goes both ways too, because I think there is there are there is going to be a segment of the population outside of China, even among the China watching community, who's going to be like traitor. Yeah, I mean that that just even appearing on on the network is is itself uh, kind of a, a, a step too far. Right. I, again, I, I ended up saying yes. I, I I actually you know personally really like the journalist. Yes, who's she involved. she is very very sharp and very 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 interested in presenting positive uh, you know rapprochement between the two cultures. So really really admire her. Yes. Well, David, I, you know, I, this has been a good conversation. It's nice to catch up after you know you being in Taiwan and, and coming out of quarantine. Mm-hmm. I hope you have a really good October holiday, staying right I, here, right I, in I, Beijing. I hope so. I don't know about the but the coup. You know, I'm going to stay indoors because we don't know how how you know how the coup is going to erupt, how bad it's going to be. Uh, actually, right after the October holiday, I, I get to go and renew my visa. Oh, cool. So, you know, okay. we'll see what happens because for the first time in however long I've lived here, I'm not that nervous about it this time because I'm almost <laughs> like, oh, really? You don't want me to live in your country and get tested every 72 hours? Oh, that's <laughs> such a shame. No, please, please, please. Okay. Well, we'll do, we'll do a post, uh, post 20th Party Congress podcast and talk about where, what's happening for the future. I think, I think things will get better by the end of, of this year, but it's hard to say. I would love to see you and I just sitting with our recorder right in front of like Jongnan High with two microphones talking, like recording the podcast right there. It would be the shortest podcast in history. Hey, welcome to the Barbarian Day. Oh, and David just got tackled. Okay, anyway, that's good. Cue the drums. Actually, on that note, thank you, David. Cue the drums. Cue the drums.